This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. This morning we are looking at Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 51. Hear the word of the Lord. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. The stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for your word. It's truth, it's beauty, it's power, it's accuracy, it's reliability. And Father, as we turn to study it today, we pray for the assistance of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that he would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that he would give us a heart to receive your word, a heart to submit to you, to bow before you, and to acknowledge that you, and you only, are the one true and living and saving God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, tells us, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Well, Israel, as they were in Egypt, experienced both sides of that proverb. Their hearts, no doubt, were sick, heart sick, heart broken, as year after year, decade after decade, century after century went by, and they were living a bleak, hard seemingly hopeless existence as slaves of the king of Egypt. Well, and that desire for freedom, that desire fulfilled, was about to occur. And we can only imagine what a tree of life that desire fulfilled was to them who lived through this event that we read about here. Certainly, hope deferred uh, was felt all the more once Moses and Aaron came along, sent by the Lord, talking about freedom, talking about leaving, and uh, things only got worse. This Pharaoh cracked down, made their task harder. Yeah, you have to go out and search for your own straw as you make bricks. Things only seem to get worse. Hope seems to be uh, always deferred. But then the Lord came with his plagues, which certainly struck fear into Egypt, but no doubt struck awe into the hearts of the Hebrews as they recognized the mighty power of God and recognized that this God with this mighty power was on their side, was fighting for them, and their desires are about to be fulfilled. They had waited a long time. 430 years, to be precise. Uh, But like a child who wakes up and realizes that, yes, in fact, it is Christmas Day. Uh, Their hopes were about to be fulfilled in a magnificent way. They realize the time really has come. They actually are about to leave Egypt, to walk out, to go out of Egypt. Now, as we look at our passage here, uh, really can divide it into three parts. Uh, first, the judgment of God, then the salvation of God, and finally, the covenant of God. Interestingly, once they get out, we go back to this whole idea of God's covenant relationship with them. But first, we look at the judgment that God sent. Uh, of course, we've been seeing this with the, with the plagues that the Lord has sent on Egypt, uh, one after another, uh, harming Egypt, showing the judgment, the power of the Lord in different ways, and above all, striking a blow at the various false gods of Egypt, and uh, no one more so than Pharaoh himself, who was seen as deity, who was seen as the, uh, the, the, the protector and the provider for Egypt, and here he was rendered powerless before the power of the true God, 
And as plague after plague strikes home, uh, his heart seems to be softened. He seems to be willing to give a little bit, but then he relents. No, uh, he will not let the Hebrews go. And finally, we arrive at this tenth plague, which, as we've seen, was threatened. But in connection with the tenth plague was also the whole uh, ceremony of the Passover. Israel had been spared the effects of the plagues by the grace of God, but in this last plague, God makes it clear that they will be spared, but only as they take action themselves. And that was, of course, to slaughter the Passover lamb, sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. They would roast the lamb. They would eat it. Uh, But the Lord had said, unless your house is covered by that blood, then you will not be spared the effects of the plague. And so we pick up in verse 29 with that tenth and final plague, that awful plague of death being carried out on Egypt. No one was spared, even from Pharaoh himself in the palace, and perhaps the primary target of this plague, that uh, the succession, the heir to the throne in Egypt dies at the will of God, a greater, higher power, the true God. But it's not limited just to Pharaoh. This is across Egypt, from the, from the palace, even down to the most humble dwellings, even down to, as it says in verse 29, the captive who is in the dungeon. No one has spared the awful effects of this plague as God's destroying angel passes through Egypt. But as the angel made his way, he would see on certain homes among the Hebrews, Uh, On their doors, the blood of the lamb, and he would pass by. He would leave their homes unmolested, uh, unharmed, and protected by the blood of the lamb. And then you see in verse 30, the reaction. Pharaoh rises up, his servants, and across Egypt, the, the wailing, the mourning starts to go up as they realize that someone in their household, firstborn, is is dead. And not just the people, but even the cattle. Death everywhere, death from the hand of the Lord. There was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where someone was not dead. It almost starts to make you feel sorry for the Egyptians when you realize the sheer scale of this plague, that in every household in Egypt, there was a corpse. There was a beloved child who was dead. But it was because of their rebellion. It was because of their idolatry. It was the just judgment of God on Egypt, showing his power, but acting on behalf of his people. And so Pharaoh reacts, verse 31, he gets up, and the picture is totally flipped. Remember, we start out with Moses and Aaron somewhat meekly going to Pharaoh, saying, please let us go. Let my, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh calls for them. Remember, he banished them. I don't want to see you guys anymore. Don't show up again. If I see your face, I'm going to kill you. Well, he summons them, middle of the night, urgently and says, get out, go away. Uh, It's very emphatic, repeated up, go out from among my people, both you and all the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. The word serve can also mean worship. And he removes all the restrictions. Remember, he tended to, to, at times, give a little bit. Well, you can go, but just take, you know, the men. Leave the women, children here. All restrictions are off. Take your flocks. Take your herds, as you've said, and be gone. And, oh, by the way, bless me also. I don't think that was sarcastic. I think in that moment of grief, 
uh, as he had asked them before to pray to the Lord to remove the plague, he's, he's asking for their protection. So a greatly humbled Pharaoh, at least at this point, uh, and the deed is done. He tells, he doesn't just say, you may go. He says, get out, go, go away, leave now. Take everybody with you. All of it. Just get out of here. And it wasn't just Pharaoh. Look at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They wanted nothing more than to get Israel out of Egypt before they were all dead. Before Egypt was completely destroyed. They said, we shall all be dead. If Israel stays here, it's going to be over. We've got to get these people out of here. And that's exactly what happens. So this is the judgment of God, this final plague, the tenth plague, that finally reduces not just Pharaoh, but Egypt to themselves, uh, to, to, to not just allowing them to leave, but, but ejecting them, sending them out from Egypt. Judgment of God. Now, just as the salvation, as we'll see, is, is, is points to something much bigger, so this does too. You see throughout the scriptures the judgment of God in various ways, going back to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, even before that, to Adam and Eve and their sin being set out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, but you see the, the judgment of God on various uh, uh, rebellious and wayward people, persons and people, in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah and others, and certainly uh, the plagues on Egypt rank among that, not, not just as the salvation of his people, as we'll see, but God's judgment on sin, pointing to all of those, pointing to the, the ultimate judgment of God on the last day. We need to recognize, as we look at Egypt, while they were a specific people, specific place, that their idolatry, their sin, their rebellion, uh, it's not unique to them. That you and I share a great deal in common with the Egyptians, as we do if you're a believer with the Israelites. But we need to recognize that, uh, that like the Egyptians, we too have our pride. We too have our sin. We too have our deities, the idols, the, the refuges of the heart that we look to. We too need to recognize that apart from the grace of God, apart from the blood of the Lamb, we are under the judgment of God. In this final plague, Israel had to put that blood up to be spared. God wanted to teach them that it, it was just sheer grace that spared them. It's not that they were better in and of themselves than the Egyptians. But in this final plague, the Lord says to Israel, Look, apart from the, this, this animal that has died, that I graciously allowed to die in your place, place of your firstborn, you would suffer loss. You would die too. So they had to take action. Well, apart from trusting in the blood of the Lamb as they did, we too find ourselves under the awful judgment of God, of which this ghastly plague is but a taste, but a drop of, of what lies ahead for those who die in their rebellion against God. We need to come to terms with the awful judgment of God, his hatred of sin, his intolerance of our rebellion. He may be patient for a time, as he was with Egypt. But this final plague eventually comes. So we start with the judgment of God, this, this, this stench of death, the awful wailing of grief in Egypt because there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
But then we turn to the salvation of God as it concerns Israel. Uh, God was bringing judgment on Egypt just as he was bringing salvation to Israel. But now we look at that salvation. Pick up with verse 34. Even the Egyptians themselves want to see the Israelites gone. Verse 34, so the people took their dough before it was leavened. Remember, it had to be with unleavened bread, which, as I said last time, probably, and I think this passage sort of confirms it, probably points to the the idea of haste, uh, that they didn't have time to leaven the bread and allow the dough to rise, uh, to leaven it so that it would rise, but they had to take it unleavened and actually cook it and eat it that way because they're, they're leaving in a hurry. Uh, And so they took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders, did as Moses asked them. I told them they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And as it said before, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. And then this statement, thus they plundered the Egyptians. A military term. As, as if Israel was a, an invading, conquering nation who invaded Israel and plundered it. So here they are in their slavery, a subjected, subdued people, and yet in their leaving, they, they plunder. They are the victorious ones. They have conquered. They have defeated in their slavery. God says, I will show my power in your weakness. Remember that? Said to Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, my... Paul prays for the thorn in the flesh to be gone, and God says, My power is made perfect in your weakness. Would you expect Israel to be a conquering force? Absolutely not. They were a broken, dejected, enslaved people, and they plunder the Egyptians. God had, had said this would happen. Turn back. We looked at this some weeks ago. Uh, look at it again. Genesis 15. We've said before that God declares what he is going to do, and then he does it. Well, look back at what God said to Abraham. Chapter 15, Genesis 15, verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, he's given the general terms, technically, accurately, technically 430, but in general terms, four centuries, 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God's judgment and the deliverance of his people, not just with the clothes on their back, not just the skin of their teeth, but with great possessions. And that's, in fact, what happens. They ask the people, the people are willing to give them everything they have if they'll just leave, if they'll just go away, they'll just get out before they all die. And so, he says, they plundered the Egyptians. So they gained this, this victory. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A very mixed, multi- mixed multitude went up also with them, much livestock, flocks, and herds. Now, you may know there's some question about the exact number, 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, uh, would make for a vast company, one half, one and a half, two million people, perhaps, um, 
some have questioned that number, saying, well, that seems like an, a, a far too large a number relative to the populations of different places in the day or the ability for that such a number to survive in the wilderness. Um, some have suggested, and there may be something to it, although it's got problems, that the word translated thousand could also be translated like tribes or clans or even military units, a much smaller group, like maybe 500. So it would be like 600 groups of 500. Um, we don't know. I mean, there, there are problems with that view, too. I think it's best to take it at face value, uh, as we'll see. God knows how to provide for a million people as well as for one person. So uh, we'll take it at face value until demonstrated otherwise. The point, of course, is the historical fact that God did bring his people out of Egypt, whatever their number, just as he said he would do. Again, I think it's best just to take it at face value. 600,000 men plus the women and children uh, may make you uh, remember, remind you of the feeding of the 5,000. We talk about the feeding of the 5,000, and the gospel writers are are quick to point out 5,000 was the number of men. Males, plus women and children added to that, would make a a much larger group. So, notes the number of men, besides the women and the children, uh, their livestock, flocks and herds, everybody, all the animals. And verse 39, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough they'd brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt. They were expelled, they were sent out, and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. And so there they are, they're leaving, uh, they, they've plundered the Egyptians, which by the way is also seen not just as, as victory over a defeated Egypt, but is also uh, in some way uh, uh, recompense, reparations for their years of slavery, unpaid labor, a uh, way of uh, repaying them for their years of labor, years of service. And then 40, uh, we have something of a summary. The time they'd spent in Israel uh, was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which reminds us that this was not Israel's doing. They were strictly the recipient of the salvation of God. He was watching over them. He was protecting them. This was his Doing, just as in our salvation. It's not our doing. It's all of God. He's the one who secures it. God's watching over them. And so this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So you have that, that summary as they come out. Salvation of God. And again, this act of redemption, this act of deliverance of salvation points forward to, uh, to a far greater one, of course. The victory of Christ, as we saw last time, his exodus, his departure, his exodus by which he leads those who have trusted in him through his own blood, delivering them from the penalty, the judgment of God for their sins. We look at these as historical events, things that actually happened, and yet they do point forward to a far greater deliverance in Christ. Now, the third part has to do with God's covenant. God doesn't just bring them to the borders of Egypt. You know, you are now leaving Egypt and say, okay, make a great life for yourself. This is as far as I go with you. Uh, you I've, I've set you free. You're on your own. Uh, go out and, and uh, make the best of it. No. Uh, their, their deliverance from Egypt is to, yes, to freedom. Yes, to eventually a land that the Lord leads them into and gives to them. 
And while that is their inheritance, ultimately their inheritance is God himself. And we're reminded of that in the final verses of this chapter, 43 and following, where the Lord goes back to Moses and Aaron and gives them further instructions about the Passover. Very clear about the Passover. Uh, This is the statute. This is the law of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave bought with money may eat of it after you circumcise him. No foreigner, no hired servant, again, to be eaten in one house, in one sitting. Don't break any of its bones. Interesting, just in light of the fact that Jesus, not one of his bones, was broken. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And if anybody who, from the outside who comes, uh, they, they want to observe the Passover with you, then males must be circumcised, which is what? It's a sign of the covenant that the Lord had given to Abraham. And so, in effect, this passage, while it's about the Passover, is about something bigger. It's about Israel as God's covenant people. And who would be a part of that? Who would participate in the life of the community in that way? Uh, And so, in effect, if you're going to eat the Passover, celebrating that uh, deliverance of the Lord then you need to be part of the covenant people. The males would bear the covenant sign of circumcision. One law. You can't just have outsiders come in and eat it. And so what this is telling them as they're leaving is that this relationship with God is going to be an ongoing one, a growing one, a developing one, uh, and that there are certain boundaries. And to come in uh, to that, to be part of that people, they would have to receive the sign of the covenant uh, or be under the headship of one who would receive the sign of the covenant and come into the community in that way. Now, for a long time, Israel was there in Egypt wondering where on earth was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What about all these promises that they had heard? Yeah, it seemed like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. had nothing to do with him. It was uh, what the Puritans would later describe collectively as a dark night of the soul, a time when God seemed distant, a time when God seemed very far away. And sometimes as believers, we might experience that, uh, where God may withdraw that sense of his blessing and his presence and his love, and we may feel like God has abandoned us. So, of course, in Christ, he never does, uh, to cause us to cry out to him, to look to him, Well, that's in a sense what Israel had experienced. They had gone down into Egypt as a place of refuge, remember, with Joseph. And uh, then new administration came to power, didn't know who Joseph was, had no sense of gratitude to him for what he did, and saw Israel as a threat and enslaved them. And for a long time, it seemed like God was not around. But now God has brought them out, and this relationship is going to once again be strengthened and restored and cultivated as he forms them into his own nation. You know, it's true of us today. We talked last week about how the Lord's Supper is the New Testament, the New Covenant version of the Passover meal, that it takes the place of the Passover meal. It points us to what Jesus did, not to what God did in the Exodus. But it's also true that those who come to the Lord's table must be baptized. An unbaptized person should not come to the Lord's table. That principle that the Lord espouses here is still very much in effect. And baptism either comes about because you were a covenant child, a child of believing parents, or because you yourself have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even today, to be part of the people of God, you're either a child of believing parents, and as you grow older and understand the gospel, profess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
baptized as a covenant child or a baptized adult believer in Jesus. But the point is that there's a relationship. We're not saved and God says, now, have a nice life. But God adopts us. We become his children. We're justified, covered by the blood of the Lamb. He adopts us as his children. He's at work sanctifying us. We, we study and learn his word and grow and obey it and live by it. And he protects us and he keeps us until that day when he leads us into Canaan, when we are with him in glory and ultimately with Christ's return in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this covenant is extremely important. It ends with verse 31. On that very day, I'm sorry, 51, on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord has brought us out of our slavery and sin by the Lord Jesus Christ, our Moses, who has led us out of the Egypt of our death, of our slavery, of our sin, to be his covenant people, to be his children, uh, to be in relationship with him. We need to recognize as we read the Old Testament, as we read this passage, that if you are a Christian, this is your story. These are your people, just as you are a descendant of Abraham, not by the flesh, but by the faith of Abraham. Well, these two are your people. This, too, is your story. But we thank God it's not the whole story. It's not the rest of the story, which, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself suffered Death, who was the lamb who died, that we might, trusting in him, be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he offered up himself. Thank you that he is our Passover lamb and that by his blood we are covered, we are protected, and we live. Father, we stand in awe of what you did in Egypt And yet, Lord, how much greater, how much more awesome, how much more striking is the deliverance you accomplished at Calvary's cross. And we give you thanks for that. Thank you, Father, that by that cross you led us out of Egypt. You led us out of slavery, out of sin, out of death. Father, we praise you for it, and we will for all eternity. Amen.